Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning, LifePoint. If you guys have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 44 through 50 in our time together today. Hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Wright, and I am the associate pastor of student life here at the church. Uh, I am really just thankful for this opportunity to be able to preach to you all from God's Word today. My wife and our three boys, we have been here back at LifePoint for almost five months now. Uh, We are just so grateful to be back. We've seen the Lord do a lot of awesome things in student life over the summer, and we are really excited for what he's going to do in the fall. Hey, next Sunday, I know Dr. Yates said, I think last Sunday, that Pastor Lane would be back preaching this Sunday, and I know you're probably all disappointed. I apologize that it's me and not him, but he will be back next Sunday preaching for us. And so uh, be praying for him as we uh, look forward to him coming back. Uh, and preaching to us from God's Word. All right, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue in our um, summer series that we've been going through over the past couple summers here at LifePoint called the Messiah's Mission. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and specifically this year, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 12 and 13 and the purpose and the potency of the parables. So we've been looking at the parables of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 12 and 13. And this morning, we're going to look at three more parables. And here's my hope. Here's what I want us to get as we look uh, at those three parables this morning. Here's our, our big idea for the text today. That there is nothing more important than entering the kingdom of heaven. I'll say that again. Here's our big idea for today. There is nothing more important than entering the kingdom of heaven. Let's go ahead and let's look straight into Matthew 13. So look at Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 44 through 50. Uh, remember, Matthew is a, uh, maybe you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible. Uh, Matthew is a New Testament book. It's the first book of the New Testament. So if you just open up your Bibles halfway uh, and go a little bit further, you can find it right there. And look with me at verses 44 through 50. Jesus says, starting in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you all to think about your life right now. I want you to think about how you spend your time your finances, what it is that you, you think about most, what it is that you're looking forward to. I want you to take all those things into consideration. Now ask yourself this question, what's most important to you? What is it in your life right now that's most important to you? If someone spent a day, a week, a month with you, what would they say is most important to you in your life? 
During my sophomore year of college, I was playing football at a small school up around Columbia, Missouri. Now, before you get all impressed, uh, I wasn't even making the JV team of a college. I didn't even realize colleges had JV teams, so just, yeah. Uh, anyways, I was rooming with one of my best friends. Uh, we grew up in Ozark together, uh, and at, uh, actually, uh, Aaron's brother over there uh, is who it is. Uh, and we grew up in Ozark together, and we were playing football, and we had something in common that... Uh, every other college student in the country, and I'm sure still today has. We were absolutely broke. And we were accruing a lot of student debt. And because we played football, we couldn't uh, get a job. And so we were left just trying to figure out ways to make money. And so one day, my buddy is searching on this website called Craigslist. And I don't know if you guys remember uh, Craigslist. Before Facebook Marketplace, there was Craigslist. Uh, and he was looking on Craigslist so we could buy and resell something. And he found this phone. It was called, it was like the best phone of the day, the iPhone 3G. And we decided we're going to pull all our money together. We're going to buy this phone. And then we're going to try to resell it for a little bit more money. Now, uh, that's exactly what we did. We, so we buy this iPhone, uh, we go and then relist it, and in a couple of days we meet some person at a random place in Columbia, Missouri, and we each make like 50 bucks. And for us, that was like all that we had at the time, and so it was phenomenal. But it gave us an idea. We started thinking, well, maybe we could actually do this for a part-time job. Now, let me say this. There is nothing sketchier than meeting random people in random places on Craigslist, Okay. Uh, it is by the grace of God that we came away unscathed by this. But as we began doing this more and more, we realized, wow, we could actually maybe turn this into a full-time job. And so we moved back down to Springfield. We got an office, opened up an Amazon web store, and we even went to uh, school online. And so think about this. In a sense, I was building up this business, but it had become my own little kingdom. I was building up my own little kingdom, and I was sacrificing everything so I could build this kingdom up. And I took a lot of pride in that. And usually when you give a couple of 20-year-olds uh, a lot of pride and more money than, uh, than they know what to do with at that time, uh, not a lot of good things happen. So when I begin thinking that I'm going to be the next Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, you know something really bad's going to happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Uh, one week in March 2012, I remember we made a really bad investment overseas. Should never have done that. Uh, made a really bad investment. And we lost like 90% of the business at the time. And so this whole world, this whole kingdom that I had been building up came crumbling down and all of my joy and all of my hope was gone because I had made such a sacrifice and put all of my pursuit into this. Now, don't hear me say this. I am not saying that it's bad to own and run businesses and to work. No, those are actually good gifts that God has given to us to use for his glory. It becomes a problem, though, when it becomes your everything and that we take Jesus away from the sinner and we replace it with that thing. And so for me at the time, it was my business. But maybe for some of you in here, maybe it's your spouse who's become your everything. Maybe it's your children. You're living vicariously through your children. Maybe it's your finances. You're constantly looking at your bank account. Do I have enough? Maybe it's retirement. What's your, what you're longing for? Maybe it's your comfort, your security, your home. Whatever it is, we as human beings tend to take good things that God has given us and we turn those into God things. And we begin worshiping them and building our own little kingdoms around that. And generally, when those things come crumbling and falling down, we're left hopeless because they were never meant to do that for us. Only Jesus can do that for us. 
And the good news is for you and I is that Jesus promises us something that there is, will never let us down, something that is so valuable that it's worth, every, it's worth losing everything for, something that will finally give us that joy that we're all chasing after. It's most important, and it's the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 50. Here's our big idea once again for this morning that there is nothing more important than entering the kingdom of heaven. So go ahead, once again, open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we're going to look at verses 44 through 46 here in a second. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at two realities about the kingdom of heaven. Two realities about the kingdom of heaven. So let's go ahead and look at that first reality about the kingdom of heaven. The first reality is, is that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth losing everything for. Let me say that again. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth losing everything for. Go ahead and look with me at uh, verses 44 through 46 in Matthew chapter 13. What we're going to do is we're going to look at two different parables that are communicating the same message. And now if you don't know what a parable is, the parable kind of takes the form of a story or a metaphor, Jesus uses parables a lot in his teachings. So I want you to think of it as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now look with me at verses 44 through 46. Starting in verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, <clears throat> sorry, all that he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus gives us these two parables, and he's trying to communicate uh, this message about the kingdom of heaven and its value and importance. But if we notice the phrase that he uses in those two parables, he uses that phrase, kingdom of heaven. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus only uses that phrase, kingdom of heaven. You can find that in all of his parables when he's teaching. Uh, Matthew uses that term 32 times throughout the gospel, gospel of Matthew. Uh, and so what I want to do, we don't have time for me to go into and define what the kingdom of heaven is right now, <clears throat> uh, because that would take an entire sermon series and we don't have time for that. Pastor Jonathan taught on that in the parable of the sower a few months ago. And so if you want to go back and listen to that, you can. But what I want to do right now is give you a quick definition in the simplest terms that I can think of on what the kingdom of heaven is. So, the kingdom of heaven, as described in Scripture, is the authoritative rule or reign of God through Christ in you. Let me say it again. The kingdom of heaven, as described throughout the Bible, is the authoritative rule or reign of God through Christ in you. In you. So we're talking about the authority and the sovereignty of God as king in your life. Now, there's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is a present reality for us. The king is here. Our king Jesus, he's here and his kingdom is advancing. At the same time, there's also a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is still a future realization. That Jesus, our king, he's going to come back. And one day his, his kingdom is going to be complete. And the redemptive reign of God in Christ is infiltrating the world now but his kingdom will not be consummated until later when Jesus returns. So we are, in a sense, living between the times. But here's the best news of the kingdom of heaven. The best news of the kingdom of heaven is that we get God. 
we get God. You and I as finite human beings get the most valuable, the most treasured possession of all, a relationship with the infinite, perfect, holy God of the universe. And so the kingdom of heaven gives us the very presence of God. So let's take all of that and now let's go back and look at verses 44 through 46. So in verse 44, you get this picture of a man who has uh, found this hidden treasure in a field. Back in Jesus' day, they didn't have safes where you could go and store your most valued possessions. They didn't have formal banks. Generally, what people did if they were going on a long journey or to protect their treasured possessions from looting soldiers coming in, they would just bury their possessions. And then when they'd come back from their journey or wartime was over, they would uncover it and have their possessions right there. And so we see this man who he must be traveling or whatever it is. He comes to this field and he finds this treasure that's so valuable that he covers it up and then enjoy, enjoy, don't lose sight of that word, enjoy, he goes and he sells all that he has so he can buy that field and have that treasure. And then in verses 45 through 46, we get this parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant and he's in search of a fine pearl. And once he finds that pearl of great value, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that pearl. And here's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us in those two parables is that there's nothing greater, there's nothing more joyful than the possession we received in knowing God through the kingdom of heaven. That it's only the kingdom of heaven that can bring us that joy that we're longing for because it gives us the very presence of God and it's worth sacrificing everything for. Let me give you an illustration to help bring home the point. As much as I love the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, uh, I have to say that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, the dude's like 100 years old and he's still playing in the NFL. He will not go away, okay? He's won seven Super Bowl rings. He owns like every record you could imagine. And it's not like he's the strongest guy or has the strongest arm. In fact, he's probably the slowest quarterback in the NFL. But what makes him so great is his pursuit after greatness and the sacrifices that he's made. So in a sense, he's made football his little kingdom and he is sacrificing whatever he wants to be the greatest at it. Listen to some of these sacrifices he makes in his life. He doesn't even eat white sugar. I mean, how crazy do you have to be not to eat white sugar? I can't imagine a day in my life without white sugar. He doesn't have white flour. There's no canola oil, no dairy, no coffee for my coffee lovers out there, no caffeine. Uh, no uh, fruit. He, he wakes up at 5.30 every morning and he works out for five hours a day and he does this because he has the goal of being the greatest quarterback of all time, which he is by far. But the question that needs to be asked is, yes, he's done this, but is it worth it? Are the sacrifices he made worth it for what he's trying to pursue? A few years ago, Brady did a 60 Minutes interview, uh, and listen to what he says during the interview. He says, why do I have these Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? Pay attention to that. I mean, a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life, but I think, man, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, and what else is there for me? And the interviewer says, well, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. 
Here's a man who has sacrificed everything he has to be the greatest quarterback of all time, and he's accomplished that, but it's still leaving him desiring for more. And this is the complete opposite of these two parables where these, these people go and they sacrifice everything they have to receive the treasure with great joy, and they're finally fulfilled because the treasure that they're running after is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And you and I, we so often do this in our lives over and over again with so many different things. We build up our own little kingdoms. I find myself doing this all the time, trying to build up my own little kingdom of self. Maybe it's with my wife. Maybe it's with my three boys and living vicariously through them. Maybe it's with my career or my finances. Maybe it's with my comfort and levels of security, my home. Whatever it is, all of these things begin to take my uh, mind to these places and I run after these things. And when I build up these little kingdoms, And if I ever actually get there, they never bring me the joy that I'm looking for in my life, Um, which goes to show that what Jesus is trying to say in these two parables is that only Jesus can do that for us. Nothing that this world offers outside of Christ can give us that satisfaction that our hearts are longing for. And if we're going to do this, and here's what we need to know, life point, if we're going to pursue the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost, it's going to cost us. There are sacrifices that are going to have to be made. But the good thing is, is that we can do these with joy because we know the ultimate sacrifice that Christ has done for us. Listen to what uh, Jesus tells Peter in Mark chapter 10. Peter says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, it's worth it. There's nothing sadder than sacrificing everything for the wrong thing. But what Jesus is saying is, is if you spend your life chasing after me, you won't regret it. It might cost you, but you will receive the greatest amount of joy possible. Guys, what are you sacrificing the most for in your life? And is it worth it? What sacrifices do you need to begin making in your life to reorient it around what's most important? Jesus. I know for me, uh, I'm easily prone towards running after and spending all my time on social media, watching YouTube videos, watching the news, watching sports. And so one of the ways I have to guard my heart is just really not getting on those things whatsoever because I know that my hearts are so easily prone towards running after those things. Maybe for you, it's time to unplug. Maybe all you're you're consumed by is whatever it is that you're thinking about constantly that's not Jesus because at the end of the day, it's never going to give you that joy that you're, you're longing for. And so my hope is that in that first reality that we see is that we can see how Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being so valuable that it's worth losing everything for and the sacrifices we need to make. Maybe it's sacrificing, uh, making sacrifices so we can spend more time in God's word or more time in prayer or more time serving here in the local church. And what I want you to know, I'm not just telling you to sacrifice to sacrifice. I'm not just saying you need to add things to your to-do list. What I'm saying is, is that If you have Jesus at the middle of it, it will bring you the joy you're looking for. But also, as we go and do this, we need to be reminded of the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. That God himself entered into this world. Jesus came to rescue a people who wanted nothing to do with him and he died on the cross for us. 
and the ultimate sacrifice that Christ made for us should enable us to go and sacrifice for others. And knowing that Jesus sacrificed everything and he was the most joyful human being ever should give us great hope in that our sacrifices for Jesus' sake will give us great joy. Guys, that's the first reality about the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth losing everything for. Let's go ahead and let's look at the second reality about the kingdom of heaven. The second reality about the kingdom of heaven is that the kingdom of heaven is only for those who trust in Jesus. Let me say that again. The second reality about the kingdom of heaven is that the kingdom of heaven is only for those who trust in Jesus. Look with me at verses 47 through 50 in Matthew chapter 13. Verse 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So those first two parables that Jesus gives us, he talks about the value and the importance of the kingdom and why it's worth sacrificing everything to get into. With this parable, Jesus talks more about this intermingling that takes place between the righteous and the unrighteous and how there's going to be a day where they're separated from one another. And look with me again at verse 47. You get this picture of this net that's being thrown into the sea. And this net gathers fish of every kind until it's full. And then once it gets full, it's, it's, it's drawn ashore and they sit down and they sort the good into containers, but the bad, it no longer has value anymore. And so it's thrown away. And Jesus says in verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. And when Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age, the end of the age is when Jesus returns. The Old and the New Testament speak extensively that there will be a day when Jesus, our King, comes back. And on that day, there will be a separation of the evil and the righteous. And this is called the day of judgment. And the day of judgment will be a triumphant celebration for the righteous, but it will be utterly terrifying for the wicked. I mean, look at the language that Jesus uses. He says they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And despite what our culture says about Jesus being okay with whatever you want to do, uh, and pretty much just kind of like a self-help coach, Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. And this notion that's taught within our culture, within liberal theology, that God can't be loving and send people to hell is just not true. Only 62% of Americans say they believe in a literal hell, but the Bible, throughout all of the scriptures, clearly teaches that the wicked or the unrighteous will experience eternal torment. It doesn't teach annihilationism, the belief that God will just annihilate the wicked, it doesn't teach universalism, the belief that everybody just goes to heaven. It doesn't teach reincarnation. It teaches a literal heaven and hell for eternity. And then when Jesus talks about this weeping and this gnashing of teeth, he's making the point that those who do not belong to Christ will suffer a terrible fate. Hell will be a place of anguish, remorse, pain, and misery forever. Now the pushback that Christians get is how can your God be so loving and send people to hell? I want you to think about this for a second. Think of somebody that's so near and dear to you. Think about a spouse. Think about a child. Maybe it's a brother, a sister, a grandparent, a mother, a father. Somebody so near and dear to you. And imagine that person murdered. And imagine you going to the trial where the murderer is supposed to receive their punishment. 
And the judge looks at that murderer, though clearly guilty, and says, you can go away scot-free. There will be no punishment for what you did today. And the murderer walks out of the courtroom and he's free to go again. You and I would be screaming, that is unloving and unjust because they're clearly guilty and they've done something wrong. Well, guys, the same is true with you and I against God. God is so holy and righteous and good. He's so holy that he can't allow an ounce of sin in his presence without it being judged. And the Bible clearly teaches that you and I have fallen short of the glory of the Lord. That you and I, day in and day out, we still sin. We've rebelled against him. Now, there are times in our lives that we want nothing to do with him. And this sin has so infected us that it's turned us away from him. And so we're not righteous by anything we've done. The Bible's clear. So the question we have to ask ourselves today is, well, man, how do, how do we become righteous? Because the wicked go to the fiery furnace for eternity. They're separated from God in their own sin, in a place of torment. How do we become righteous? Well, in Luke chapter 7, uh, we come to one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, open them up to verses 36 through 50 in uh, Luke chapter 7, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And I want you to imagine yourself as a fly on the wall uh, throughout this story, okay? I'm going to introduce you to the three main characters. We have Simon. He's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He is extremely moral. I mean extremely moral. We have a prostitute, a woman of the city, who externally is extremely immoral. And we have Jesus. And we have Jesus. And Jesus has come to Simon's house to have dinner with him. And as, as they're eating there, this woman of the city, this prostitute, she comes in and she falls flat on her face in front of Jesus towards his feet and she begins tearing or crying all over his feet and washing his feet with her hair. And she has this little uh, jar of perfume with her and she takes out the perfume and she begins anointing his feet. It was custom in that day whenever you would go into somebody's home that they would provide you with a way to clean your feet because you're wearing sandals everywhere. And Simon had not done this for Jesus. And there's this woman. And this is why she's doing it. This woman knows who she is. She knows how society views her. She knows that she deserves hell because of what she's done. But she also knows that there's a God, that the Messiah has come, and he loves her so much that he's willing to forgive her of whatever it is she's done. And so she's so overwhelmed by her sin, but more by God's grace. And so she's just there thanking Jesus, wiping his feet with her tears. And listen to what the religious leader, the Pharisee, says, Simon. In verse 40, or in verse 39, Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that he forgets he's talking to holiness in the flesh. And then look at how Jesus responds. In verses 41 through 50, Jesus answers and he says, Simon, he says, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins? And pay attention to what he says in verse 50. He says, and he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The woman's faith in Jesus saved her, not the man's pride in himself and his external works. See, guys, the kingdom of heaven is full of a bunch of broken, messy sinners who know they need Jesus. It's not the kingdom that boasts about how awesome we are. There's actually a place for that, and it's called hell. Some of us are living in that kingdom today. Let me say this. All of us have lived in that kingdom, and if we're not, it's by the grace of God. But some of us are living in that kingdom today, And it's going to cost us if we don't repent because God is the one who deserves all the glory because he's the most glorious. We're not. God created you and I. Genesis chapter one says that God created you and I in his image to bring glory to all of creation. That when the rest of creation was to look at us, they were to say, wow, that looks just like God. But then sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three and sin turned us away from God. And every single one of us born in this room today have been infected by sin And the Bible calls it, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were born spiritually dead, literally enslaved to Satan. Now, that's not popular to say, but it's what the Bible teaches, that you and I were born with a disposition running away from God and rebellion against God. Now, God has the full right. When you cut yourself off from the source of life, you deserve punishment and judgment. That's exactly what we've done. And we still do it day in and day out in our lives. But the good news is that despite knowing that, God loves us so much that he entered into this world. He took on flesh to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, to die the death that you and I deserve on the cross because of our sin. Jesus took all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin, past, present, and future, and he resurrected three days later to prove that his sacrifice was enough. And the good news for you and I The Bible says if we repent of our sins, if we acknowledge ourselves as sinners and in desperate need of Jesus, and we put our trust in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we can be forgiven of it all. All of our sin is gone. All of it, past, present, and future, and you're no longer considered unrighteous or wicked or evil. You're now considered a child of God, righteous in his sight, because your faith is in the perfect life of Jesus and not yourself. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We bring absolutely, we are our own problems. To think that we could save ourselves is crazy. There's nothing we can do. Only Jesus can do it. When we become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes into us. It's literally God dwelling inside of us. And he now empowers us to live us the new life in the kingdom, in the partial kingdom, as we await the return of our king to come and consummate the full kingdom. Guys, Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Every other world religion teaches us that you have to do something to earn God's love. And Christianity tells us, no, 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 God has come to us to rescue us from our sin. There's nothing we can do. All we can do is put our trust in Jesus Jesus is the only one who can take away sin. He's our only path into the kingdom of heaven where we get to experience his presence for eternity. Let me ask you this, because here's the application part of it for us who know Jesus. Are we burdened by those who don't know Jesus? 
Do we take this text seriously that there's going to be a day when Jesus returns and for those who don't know Jesus, there's going to be eternal torment, a weeping and a gnashing of the teeth? Are we burdened by that because we've had the good news shared with us and now God uses us as the instruments to go and tell others about him? Are we burdened by that? When was the last time you told someone about the hope only found in Jesus? That's why I love being here at LifePoint is because we're serious about making real Christ followers in life together, making disciples that make disciples and planning churches. That's why we, we send um, uh, uh, missionaries overseas to serve in Barcelona. Uh, that's why we partner with Montana is because we want to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth because we know what's at stake. And if you're in here today and you've never come to the point of putting your trust in Jesus, why not today? What is it that you're waiting for? Where is your hope right now? And will your hope be able to give you what you want it to give you? This is the second reality about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who trust in Jesus. So this morning, we've looked at two realities about the kingdom of heaven. First, we saw that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth losing everything for. And second, we just saw that the kingdom of heaven is only for those who trust in Jesus. And remember our big idea, these two realities are just emphasizing our big idea that there is nothing more important than entering the kingdom of heaven. In 1997, one of the highest grossing movies ever came out. It was called The Titanic. Uh, now this is church, so you can't lie. Raise your hand if The Titanic's your favorite movie. It's okay, I, it's, I understand, yeah. It's all about this love story between Jack and Rose, but the movie is based loosely around the British passenger liner that sank in the North Atlantic Ocean on April 15th, 1912. The Titanic was on its way to New York City. It hits an iceberg, uh, and there were an estimated 2,200 people on board, and over 1,500 people died. And as we've all heard about the fictional love story between Jack and Rose, my guess is many of us probably haven't heard about the true story of John Harper. John Harper was the pastor of Walworth Road Baptist Church in London, England. He was a widower and he was traveling with his six-year-old daughter and his sister to Chicago because he was about to accept the nomination to become the next pastor at the famous Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. Well, obviously we all know what happens to the Titanic. I apologize if you have not seen it, but it hits an iceberg. For Harper, he was able to lead his daughter to a lifeboat and because he was a widower, they actually were going to allow him to join her on that boat. And how many of us are absolutely getting on that boat? We have the opportunity to get out of here with our child. We are getting on that boat. But instead of getting on the boat, Harper forsook his own rescue because his heart was so burdened by all those on board who didn't know Jesus and were about to meet their eternal fate. Harper ran person to person, passionately telling others about Christ. As the water began to submerge the unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. Rebuked by a certain man at the offer of salvation, Harper gave him his own life vest saying, you need this more than I do. And up until the last moment of, on the ship, Harper pleaded with people to give their lives to Jesus. The ship disappeared beneath the deep frigid waters, leaving hundreds floundering in its wake with no realistic chance for rescue. Harper struggled through hypothermia to swim to as many people as he could, still sharing the gospel. <coughs> and he would eventually lose his battle with hypothermia, but not before giving one last person one last 
glorious gospel witness. And four years after the tragedy at a Titanic survivors meeting in Ontario, Canada, one survivor recounted his interaction with Harper in the middle of the icy waters of the Atlantic. He testified that he was clinging to the ship's debris when Harper swam up to him, twice challenging him with the biblical invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The man rejected the offer once, yet given the second chance and with miles of water beneath his feet, and I'm sure he's thinking he's about to die, the man gave his life to Christ. Then as Harper succumbed to the watery grave, this new believer was rescued by a returning lifeboat. And as he concluded his remarks at the Ontario meeting of survivors, this man simply stated, I am the last convert of John Harper. LifePoint John Harper knew the value and the importance of the kingdom of heaven, that he literally sacrificed his own life and an opportunity to be a prestigious pastor here in the States with his daughter, who was also without her mother, that he sacrificed his own life so he can go and tell one last person about the glorious witness of Jesus Christ and how Jesus has done, what was Jesus' sacrifice for his life. The only reason that John Harper sacrificed his life for those people was because he knew that Jesus had sacrificed his life for himself, that Jesus had come into this world knowing that John Harper needed to be rescued and laid down his life so that John Harper could be forgiven of all of his sin and brought into the kingdom of heaven. And right now, John Harper is in the presence of Christ. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're a believer and you're realizing you have built your own little kingdom, but it's not around the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's around the kingdom of self, or it's around the kingdom of family or finances or this future version of yourself that you just think, if I just get there, it's finally going to be great. Maybe what you're realizing is this is not working out the way I thought it would. Maybe you need to reorient, reorient your heart around Jesus again. Or maybe you're in here and you're not a believer and you're hearing the gospel for the first time and you're realizing uh, there's nothing I can do to save myself. I've tried playing the church game. I've gone to church a couple times, maybe in a group here and there. I've put everything in my own power, in my own strength. And this is the first time you've heard about this God who entered into this world to rescue you from your sin, to bring you to himself into a new family called the local church with the heavenly father and we await his return to consummate this kingdom of heaven. Well, there will be no tears. There will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. There will be no misery. All because Jesus loves you this much. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you realize I need to turn away from my sin. I need to turn towards trusting in Jesus because what I'm putting my hope in will never be able to get rid of the sin that only Jesus can get rid of. If that's either of you today, uh, we're gonna have a pastor standing up here and we would love to pray with you um, once the service is over or during the songs. Let me pray for us.